Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 505 with Chef Joe Sparata. I think I think the lesson is you can do things on a budget if you have a good if you allow the people that you're that are going to be helping you to do what they know. Okay. Like my my mother-in-law was I mean, theoretically this should have cost $100,000 and we were able to do it for about 50. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Introducing Ethic Suite, the first and only misconduct, theft, and fraud reporting platform exclusively for the restaurant industry. Check out restaurantethics.com to see how restaurant employees can report any concerns anonymously, easily, and securely from any device with internet connection. However, if you're an owner or manager, you should check out ethicsuite.com slash restaurantunstoppable for more information on how you can monitor and respond to these reports and stay informed about issues that could affect your business and your reputation. One more time, that's ethicssuite.com slash restaurants unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Joe Sparata. Chef, are you feeling unstoppable today? Yeah. As much as I can be. Great. That's what we like to hear. So a native of the Garden State of New Jersey, Joe was born into a family of chefs and took up the craft at an early age before moving to Virginia. Sparata spent approximately 10 years working in some of New Jersey and New York's finest kitchens. Once in Virginia, Sparata helped restaurateurs uh, Paul Keevil, Chef Jason Alley, past chef, uh, guest mentor on the show, by the way, uh, Michelle Jones. And opening in their acclaimed pastures. Uh, in 2012, Sparata broke off on his own to open Heritage Restaurant, which was followed by uh, Sparata's second restaurant, Southbound, a few years later. Both restaurants have been rolling in accolades and awards ever since. And I can't wait to dive into your story, Chef. And let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling before we really learn who you are and what you're all about. Um, yeah. As, are you talking like a term? Yeah. Share, share success quote or mantra for us. Um, I, I think our real mantra is just focusing on making people happy. Like that's, it sounds really simple, but that's our core value. We're, we're here to serve. Yeah. We're here to make people happy. We're here to create experiences, but we're just focusing on making people happy and trying as hard as we can to do that. And that's yeah. really our, our main focus. And I, probably will be my main focus forever yeah it's that simple and it's that hard um so bring it to where it all started for you uh when i mean it sounds like you grew up in the industry so it was kind of always a part of your life um mm-hmm. uh, but when did you know you were going to make this your career uh, i think when i was 20 years old and i'd been working in kitchens since i was 14 father was a chef mother was in the food world too um was kind of forced into working when I was younger and didn't necessarily love it. Um, mostly because I wanted to be doing other things, but seemingly I grew to really love it around the time that I got into a restaurant called the Ryland Inn. And that was just like a whole new world of chaos uh, that I had never seen before. You know, it was a New York times four star restaurant. It was just like, I was working in shitty Italian restaurants for a long time, like knocking around and yeah. just 
pizzerias doing whatever. And then seeing this whole way of thinking and this like beautiful organic garden and how committed people really were and how passionate people were and how intelligent uh, Chef Craig Shelton was. It was just like infectious. And so it sounds like it was almost like a, a culture shock from going from like these kind of uh chaotic restaurants chaotic kitchens mm-hmm. uh, with maybe not the best culture to like this culture of pride and prestige and discipline and uh am i am i yeah s- no, swinging and making connection that's totally here? accurate yeah so that gets me really excited because i, I mean that's why i'm here to, is to to share these these values to share what it can be and to know that you can make a difference when you have these values and you live a certain way so really dive into what it was like in this kitchen paint that picture of perfection for us um, it was horrifying. I, I think for the first two years, um, <laughs> just, just the most difficult and challenging thing I'd ever done up until that point. So just like really challenging work conditions, um, being forced to do things you never thought were possible, just being pushed to a level of, you know, wanting to break down and cry like on a regular basis like just they would try to snap you and how many years were you there total uh six years so for the first two years it was like this but eventually yeah i mean i started there working for free like because they're like well if you want a job you're not going to work for any money and that was kind of challenging and thankfully they brought me on at a whole six dollars an hour okay so (laughs) what was it about this restaurant that was appealing to you to even go out for in the first place um i have like a strange story i guess behind the Ryland inn so i was born on the my father was a chef there in the 80s so it was never super acclaimed it was more like you know a glorified big tavern it wasn't you know when i started at the Ryland inn it was the number one restaurant in the state for years and years and years and okay it was just like the best yep. highest end nicest restaurant that i never thought i could be a part of that but when I grew up literally on the property, so my father had a had a house on the property. I lived there until I was about seven or eight. Okay. So I had all these like weird emotional connections to the property because I grew up there. Yeah. Um, Naturally. And I was kind of drawn back to that because I lived in the same town um, for years. And after just knocking around, I just wanted to, I don't know if it was to prove something to myself or for somebody else, but... I wanted to prove that I can get in there and do it. Okay. Um, and it was terrifying. Just utterly terrifying. So you were you willing to work for free? Did you yeah. did you start off as a stage? Were yeah. you how did that go? How did you approach them saying, Hey, I want to work here? And they're I, like, Well I walked in with it. my shitty resume and was like, you know, I just want to be here and yeah. I want to work here. And they're like, Well, if you want to do that, you're you know, we can have you essentially be a stage for however long. And if you are worth anything, maybe we'll give you some money okay so when did they decide that you were worth something um it wasn't that long actually it was a couple i think like two weeks okay and how did you transform in that two weeks what made you go from being worthless to worth something i'm not sure i think i think i was able to tolerate a lot of shit i mean it was a loud kind of intense kitchen and if you're able to not break down and quit then (laughs) i think that's how they I, I think my skills were decent. They weren't really that good. Okay. Um, so naturally, uh, we don't really break into uh, the skill so much during the conversations, but more about who you were, the values you developed over this time. So what values did you 
slowly start to develop as you surround yourself with these incredible, uh, passionate, cultured chefs. I, I think it just gave me a great appreciation of the craft. Okay. So honing a craft, refining it, trying to get better, trying to figure out a way to survive in that, in that kitchen was a big thing. Um, but I really just got the sense of there's so much more out there and there's, there's so much that I need to learn. Mm. So your chef at this time was Craig Shelton, yeah. correct? Uh, how did he run that kitchen? What did you pick up from him, this mentor, during this time? I picked up really needing to understand science behind cuisine. Why is that so important? Uh, he went to, well, it's important because science is a part of everything that we do. Mm. Uh, chemical reactions for everything that we yeah. do. Um, but he took it down from like a molecular standpoint, like really serious before anybody really got into, let's say the whole molecular gastronomy or whatever you want to call it. Um, modernist cuisine. He was doing that, you know, 15 years before. Okay. Um, he went to Yale for molecular biophysics. So, okay. I mean, just brilliant. Yeah. Human. Okay. Um, but he, he really forced us to understand and to really read books like on food and cooking and to understand why, if you're putting something in a pan, the reaction that it's, that it's taking and what's happening. So did he ever explain to you why it was so important to know why? Um, he's like, if you understand that, then you can really start to hone your craft a lot better and you can take it to another level. And everything has a reason. Yeah. You know, I think that's a good management lesson too. Like when you can either tell somebody to do something a certain way or you can teach them why there's a certain way to do it. And once you know why that there's a a rhyme and reason behind every little detail to make it something as good as it can possibly be, then you start caring. Yeah. Because there's a reason there's, there's a why behind it all. He was, it was like a cult mentality. Yeah. Like he got people to drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah. Um, what do you think he did or was what was unique about him that enabled him to get people to drink the Kool-Aid? I think he understood how to get in people's heads, which is sometimes a good thing and a bad thing. Um, but usually for, you know, on a more positive level, I mean, the amount that I learned there and what he taught was better than any school than I could have gone to. I mean, that's how I met my wife who was externing at CIA and she would come there and work for free on the weekends and She's like, I would gain more in that weekend than I would in two or three months at school. Like that was, that was real. And she was paying to be going to CIA, driving two hours just to come stage. Yeah. It's funny. I was just talking to Mike Ledesma and I'm pretty sure it came up in this conversation. He's a chef down the street, uh, opening perch. Uh, and he, pointed out like the, the value of going to work for free and he would get shit from his friends who are like, why you know they're, they're playing you like you're that's nobody should ever work for free. He's like, I'm not working for free. Like I'm learning so much. I'm becoming so valuable because of the lessons, the skills, yeah. the knowledge I'm picking up. And you have to have that mentality of like, I might not be getting paid to, to be here monetarily, but what am I picking up as far as the reputation, tying my name to this restaurant, the, the, all that little stuff. Do you want to reflect on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I was a huge proponent of going and staging before we opened or helped open elements restaurant in Princeton. I would just stage in New York city, wherever anybody that would take me. Um, and I, I think, you know, you, you do gain so much by just seeing different systems, by seeing how people operate in a different manner. You, if, if you're paying attention, it is so valuable. Mm. But if you're not, and you're just going there to write it on your resume, like what's the, what's the point? So 
can you get specific about a, a certain system or a, a way that they did things that most kitchens or restaurants miss on uh, a way to something we can implement in our own businesses? I know it's kind of gets very specific, but on like a broad general sense. Well, I mean, most of the staging I did was like, you know, three Michelin star restaurants and those systems were set up in a manner that everything was just built in like little kits okay, and kitted out to a point where everything was so perfect, which was something I saw that I didn't necessarily want. I, that, that kind of level of perfection is not, it's exhausting. Can you get a little more detailed in what you mean by like a kit and like how they presented uh, these processes uh, so, and kits? Yeah, if there was like a monkfish dish and it had, you know, eight different vegetables, each one was perfectly set up in like 30 little B&B plates. Okay. Um, but each one in the same spot and everything cooked in or blanched or roasted, whatever it might be, everything was just perfect. And then just moving food around, warming it up, moving it onto a plate. And like, that was it. There was like table side saucing. This is like at La Bernardine specifically. Okay. Um, but it, that didn't feel like cooking to me because the Ryland Inn forced you to really cook and okay. it forced you to do so much and to push yourself really hard. Whereas not to say that all those people weren't working very hard because I know they are, but I feel like I gained a larger skill set from being in a more challenging kitchen that forced you to do more so, because it didn't have, let's say all those resources. Yeah. So like a kitchen like Liberta did, how many chefs are cooked? Like 30, 30. So you're kind of like in, in a sense, like a fast casual concept where you're responsible for doing one thing, you know, right. putting the cheese on or like putting the meat on the bread or essentially, and then you, at the yeah. end you just bring it all together. Everybody's bringing it all together. So, and it's just, I don't know. It felt like we weren't really cooking. And yeah. as much as I did, really get to learn from operationally yeah operational standpoint it is one of the most efficient things i've ever seen and it's beautiful in its own right yeah it's just that wasn't something i wanted to do even though those are the restaurants i worked in any creativity there There wasn't any sense of autonomy freedom of expression not really okay no and that was you know that's how they're designed and I, i had the opportunity to eat there a few times and it's still one of my favorite meals of all time it's still one of my favorite restaurants in the world Mm. but Seeing it from behind the scenes took a little bit of the magic away. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. It's like learning a magic trick. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. And that's... Well, what what was... I mean, Eric Repair, obviously a, a staple in the industry. His name's known everywhere. What was some of the things you learned as far as leadership or character or anything regarding how to be successful from working under his... his uh, well, uh, maybe I, was, it, was it direct tutelage or was it... He was... No, he was he was kind of there, but a little more removed and had really intense chef de cuisines and, um, you know, brilliant pastry chefs. Michael Lasconis was the pastry chef there at the okay. time who I spent a lot of time with in pastry because that's what I was working on, was trying to refine okay. my pastry game. And he was so sharing and accommodating. And I, I think the values of sharing information and knowledge were imparted on me the most. That's, that's what I got out of it the most. Yes. It's just sharing is so vital and key. If somebody wants or request something from us if they want to know how we do it. Like I'm totally transparent. There's no, I think the mentality of having, let's say secret recipes is, yeah. is dead. And, and there are chefs out there um, less so today, I believe that will not let you do certain things because they don't want you to have the recipe because they're afraid yeah. that you'll go and compete with them. And I, yeah, that's, I think that's an older mentality and maybe that's a generational thing. Yeah. Um, and I think the food world has grown so much due to the sharing of knowledge mm. and, you know, the internet and social media has obviously helped that tremendously, yeah. but 
I think it's an important core value to have to like, I'm here to teach and I'm here to help make the people better that are working for me or working with us. And I, I want them to be able to go and do their own thing and have that kind of mentality and continue to keep the ball rolling, try to share. Yeah. So uh, I'm tempted. Maybe I'll put this, this thought in the back burner. Um, maybe remind me to come back to it. Look, when you do train somebody up and they, they, they do get to the point where they can go off and do their own thing, the question of like loyalty and whether or not they should or should. They should go do it. They I mean, it. if there's opportunity within the company um, to have growth for them, try to present that to them. Yeah. Um, but if they've also hit the wall where they can't gain much more, I fully support people moving forward. I'm and putting a note to come back to this because I want to go deeper, but I want to stay chronological uh, mm-hmm. growth. I'll just put growth. That'll be my reminder. So um, we kind of touched on what you learned under the, uh, Chef Craig Shelton. Then we kind of jumped over to Eric Repair. Any other mentors, any other people that had really transformative uh, roles on you? Yeah, I, I think Scott Anderson... Um, we worked together at the Ryland Inn for uh, on and off four years, and we I helped Scott open Elements Restaurant, which okay. became one of the most interesting restaurants in the country. And uh, that that experience was huge because I got to see it from the bottom, like starting the whole everything architecture. It was we were involved in pretty much all aspects. Okay, from more of a business pro, uh, perspective, not so much a culinary perspe- perspective, but a business perspective. What did you learn about opening a restaurant? Uh, things, uh, the details to pay attention to. Things. Like that I, I think that architects over-engineer everything, and uh, to the point of my father-in-law is the architect. Who's he's awesome, Bob yeah. Steele. He's a wonderful architect, but um, I th- I think it's everything's usually going to come in over budget. Okay. Seemingly. So what's, and everything's going to come in late. So build and wiggle room, both on budget and time, budget and time. Yeah. I mean, time, especially because you just, there's so many unforeseen aspects that pop into play, depending on what city you're working with and how, you know, permitting can be, it's, it's just ultimate chaos. So how much, give me a percentage, how much, and you can't give me a specific number because every restaurant's a unique beach, but beast, but what, um, what is the percentage we should say? Say you think you need a uh, hundred thousand dollars. What should we really get? Uh, budget in an extra twenty five percent. Twenty five percent. I yeah. mean, maybe, and that's that's going on the higher end of things. Okay. But yeah, whatever you think you're going to need, you're always going to probably need a little bit more because there's there's a lot of like unforeseen costs of like opening inventory, um, just things that sometimes people don't account for. Um, and that's one of the reasons, like, uh, one of the troubles that I ran into with opening Heritage and having no money whatsoever to do it yeah. um, was, you know, we pretty much had $0 in our bank account when we opened Heritage. <laughs> okay. And we were expecting our first child. So it was just Let's, fucked. We'll, we'll, we'll go okay. deeper into that for sure. But uh, with the experience of opening Element, any other uh, tricks or uh, pieces of knowledge as far as maybe after the, the build out when you're actually about to open the doors and you're working out your systems, processes, procedures, protocols, all those things from scratch. Yeah. What did that look like? Any lessons there? Um, that was, that was, it was such a giant project. I mean, it was like a $6 million restaurant. So it was massive. Um, I think it was just trying to figure out, you think if you figure out your target demographic a little bit better to start as opposed to just being like, I'm going to cook this food and people are going to love it. Yeah. That's not necessarily always the case. Um, I think we struggled with trying to 
push a little bit too hard and force food upon people that they really didn't understand or get. Mm-hmm. I think if you challenge your, what your year diner. Was this? Oh, man. Um, over 12 years ago. Okay. Yeah. So 2006. Yeah, give so or take. just before like the the smartphone boom, where yeah. people are really starting to educate themselves and be a little bit more uh, willing to try things because everyone's sharing all over the place, like what's yeah. out there. I, I think you really you required a staff that understood how to educate from the front of the house standpoint because that was so key and vital. And we did have a great. My wife was a general manager, and we had a wonderful staff. But yeah, the smartphone thing. It's yeah it's really helpful for helping diners understand certain things or have more exposure to, you know, different kinds of food. And this was really pushing like the avant-garde level really hard and trying to force it on people. And it was in Princeton, New Jersey. So it's like, maybe it wasn't the most logical thing. Ultimately what happened with element didn't, it's still, it's still open. Okay. Yeah. But it never, you know, it's really hard to turn a profit when you're, when you're requiring such expensive ingredients, so much labor, it's it's just really challenging. What okay. I have learned about the high-end world from everything I've seen is that it's not sustainable to the fact that... You're cooking for your ego at that point, not the... Kind of. Yeah. yeah that's like... That's true. It yeah. is. And it's it shouldn't be about that. And that was kind of always my issue with, with you know those kind of restaurants is it didn't feel like we were cooking for the people. Mm. felt like we were cooking for whether it was James Beard Awards or whatever it might be. It didn't feel like we were there for the people. Mm. And Heritage and Southbound, I believe, are trying to make it for the people. So how is the culture different there? Because you you I mean you felt this. Did it affect the culture of not making it about the people, but making it about the reputation instead? Yeah, it was, I don't know, it kind of felt like self-serving. And I did learn a tremendous amount, but at the same time, it didn't feel like we were always giving people what they wanted. Hmm. And that should never be the case. Yeah. It's like we're here to give people exactly hopefully what yeah. they want and yeah. hopefully they'll enjoy it. I love it. And I think we did expose people to you're, you're, I think you're when you're doing that kind of food, you're focusing on a much smaller demographic, maybe 10 percent of the population that is interested in that kind of food. What do you do with the other 90 percent? You force that on, on people like that's where we ran into challenges. And that's why some people will open a casual restaurant or quick service restaurant to try to be able to continue to fund that you know, that much more serious project. Okay. Got you. I, I mean, that's what they had to do. So I don't want to overlook uh, anything. I don't want to move too fast, but I just looked at the timer already over a 20 minutes of recording time. This goes fast, dude. Um, you eventually make your way down to Virginia, but is there anything you want to drop on us before we uh, talk about why you moved to Virginia and what the opportunities were here for you? I had no you? opportunities here. I'm curious why, why, why make the move? Cause your family's in New Jersey. Yeah. Your experience is in New York. What was in Virginia for you my, to come out here? My wife's family is from here okay. and she had spent, you know, almost 10 years away from them. Okay. And even though we had investors and people lined up wanting to do projects with us up North, there was a lot of limitations. Like the liquor license at elements restaurant was $750,000 just to have the ability to serve alcohol. Wow. Like that, yeah. And that was kind of commonplace for much of the areas we were looking at. So how do you, not having any money, how do you make that work? The only way we could figure that out was to go to a location that seemingly um, might be a little bit more forgiving on those on those kind of aspects because we did not have 
any money. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I keep on referencing my conversation with Mike that we had yesterday, but he was in a similar situation. He was in Baltimore and he came to Richmond. And his, mm-hmm. his rationale uh, was that you know I could be making $60,000 a year as an executive chef here, but that would only get me so far. Whereas if I take these same skills and go open a restaurant in uh, Richmond where – you know, the dollar goes much further and there's much more, you know, you can be, uh, you can make more of an impact because the competition isn't quite there yet. Was that kind of going through the back of your mind where you could probably stand out a little more because you're not surrounded by all these like top level New York chefs? Um, not, not really. I mean, I think that wasn't really part of my thought process. It Do you think that more, played into it? Um, not, not really. Okay. I mean, I think it was more about just trying to, find a way to get something open where I can support myself and my family and hopefully build a life. Mm-hmm. And I really liked Richmond and I thought it was a, a great city. I love it. I love it here. I and, do too. Uh, it's been great. You know, I think the, I think the food world here is kind of completely blown up and, and it's great because there's a lot of people that are kind of caught similar. the wave at a good time. Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, time and place were seemingly right. Mm-hmm. So you, you originally the first when you when you came to Virginia you joined up with, with Jason Alley mm-hmm. uh, and Michelle Jones correct yeah and uh, the other gentleman uh, the other gentleman was Paul Kevel who has Millie's restaurant okay. so we knew him through family friends and we were trying to help him with his restaurant Lulu's and that didn't necessarily pan out so we I met Jason Alley at uh, Star Chefs in New York City and he was like yeah hey, I'm opening a new restaurant if you're ever interested I was like well. I might be moving to Virginia, so oh, cool. we'll see. And uh, Jason's been, you know, a really good friend, and um, you know, definitely a mentor for helping me understand the market of Richmond. And yeah, I mean, uh, my goal—I kind of told him when we first started—I was like, I'm gonna, you know, I'm looking at opening my own restaurant, and that's what I'm working working towards. And you know, I'd like to help you open pasture, and took the job as chef de cuisine there, and pretty much almost a year to the day is when we had the opportunity to open heritage. Okay. So you said he was a huge mentor. What did he teach you about the business and about, I guess, I guess, uh, conforming to a market? I think, you know, making food more approachable because the food I was doing was not approachable at all. Okay. If I was doing the food I did at elements or the Ryland Inn, I believe I would be out of business okay. at this point. Um, I, I don't believe it would have lasted two years. All right. What about how he ran his business as far as how he treated people, how, you know, the, the attention to detail, anything like that you can drop on us, any big lessons you drew from this experience under his tutelage? Yeah, I mean, he, he definitely was treating, you know, all, all people with respect and I, I think it's just treating people the way you'd like to be treated. Yep. Um, being straightforward and not really beating around the bush. No time for to bullshit people. It's just be who you are. And okay. So let's talk about, you mentioned that he uh, emphasized the, uh, or you emphasized the, the fact that you communicated from the very beginning that you wanted to open your own place. Mm-hmm. Why is that so important to put that out there and to 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 let your intentions be known? Well, I I didn't want it to be you know a surprise, and I also didn't have all the resources, let's say, of investors or anything here for you that didn't matter. Have a network? No, I didn't have a network. So putting it out there, I thought. Maybe in the future, he might be able to help me or if he's going to be doing another project, maybe I can help him do that or whatever it might be. I I just think being honest is the best policy, regardless of if it's going to put you in 
a bad situation because it's, I think it's important that to have honesty and integrity. And Absolutely. Be straightforward. For sure. So how many years you were there for two years? One year. One year. Yeah. Uh, and then you went and you opened heritage where we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, why wasn't he, was he not interested in this opportunity to partner with you or did you, I didn't really present it like that. Okay. I mean, it was more, we, we had met somebody that was trying to sell, it was six burner restaurant and they were trying to get out of the restaurant and he was one of the partners actually at uh pasture. Okay. So he kind of saw I th- maybe what my wife and I were capable of and aspirations of what we wanted to do. And he presented us with the opportunity. So and we took it. Who's he? Uh, Ryan Marchant. Okay. So, so Ryan Marchant, you know, he, he knew the uh, lineage of you and your wife, right. where you guys came from, what you were capable of. And he approached you and said, Hey, I got an opportunity for you. Yeah. He's like, would you be interested in buying, you know, six burner? I was like, we have no money, but yes, we'll so figure it out. Let's kind of dive into how you pull this off with no money. What, what, what made this opportunity, uh, what was going on in your head saying, we don't have any money, but we can make this work because fill in the blank. Uh, because we were driven and <laughs> hell bent on making it work. What about, uh, the, was it a turnkey operation? Did it have everything you needed? It had, it had everything we needed. Um, for the most part, we just had to do, we did about $50,000 in renovations, um, which is, we wound up borrowing that money through a family member and paying that back quickly. Um, but what were the major re- renovations that needed to be done? We just needed it not to be the restaurant that it was. Okay. You know, so you needed to paint, redefine it. You yeah. needed to, to give it a new brand, a new identity. Exactly. They, he Why wanted us so to important? take it over. Um, he wanted us to keep it as six burner. I was like, well, we're not, we're not willing to do that. Okay. Um, that was important for us because it didn't necessarily have the best reputation. It had a good reputation, but it was also known as a restaurant that was kind of serving uh, one, one demographic, and that would be seemingly people that were a little bit older, um, more retirement plus age. Yep. And we wanted to get away from that. We wanted to make a restaurant that was here for everybody. That was a neighborhood restaurant. And to be able to come in and do that, I think you need to change things. Mm. And, and it didn't work. I mean, that, that, that restaurant now has a reputation. So now you have to try to change your reputation when you could just start from a clean slate and, and a clean slate. A it costs more new, money. Yeah. New, so. new brand. Yes. I mean, what, what are the key things you can do on a, a low budget to completely change a brand? Like, like you did, uh, get in there, do the work and be consistent. Okay. I mean, that was, that was all we did. People didn't know who we were. Um, it was really kind of word of mouth and, seemingly if you're if you're able to do the work and you're able to consistently make people happy and people will follow and yeah. they like discovering something more so than you know somebody that's coming seemingly people coming in from out of town have had a lot of trouble because Richmond is from what i i can see is they they like to discover things mm. and then it becomes partly theirs you know and that's they have like a little bit of ownership in it because yeah, they feel like they help, you know, discover it and make it successful. And they did. And the, our clientele is a huge part of us being here and they're super supportive. And we've had people coming in for, you know, six years now that we still see on a regular basis. And it's crazy. 
let's dive into that. I mean, because listening to you talk, it kind of reminds me of Malcolm Gladwell. I'm a yeah. huge fan of his. And he talks about the tipping point yeah. where you got to appeal to the mavens of the world. Right. right. And it sounds like these people that you're talking about are the mavens of the world that get out there and they discover things. And then it's like a like a trophy. Like, yeah. Look what I found. Yeah. Like, I found this first. And they. So did you try, try, try to appeal to those mavens of the world? And if so, how? Um, yeah, I, I think we it was definitely a challenge, but just trying to have some things that were a little more approachable was key. Um, you know, putting a burger on the menu, like I hadn't cooked a burger in years. Yeah. Like that's not what I really wanted to be doing, but you have to make certain concessions to try to, you need to be able to serve somebody's grandmother after coming in. Mm-hmm. Like we have a half roasted chicken that we've had since day one. And like those kind of things it was on the six burner menu. <laughs> uh, it could have been, who knows? Yeah. I have no idea. Um, they were they were actually doing food that was like really expensive and like it was it was nice food yeah. but it was a little one of the higher highest price points in the city definitely during a time when the city was kind of struggling from sure. what I understand yeah uh, so when I'm curious did you ever identify these mavens these people and did you recognize who they were and yeah. did, you, did you how did you cultivate those relationships once you knew they were an influencer um, or am I just making assumptions at this point. I don't know. I, I think you can tell me if I am. <laughs> no, I, it was it was really just trying to figure out our our demographic and clientele, and we weeded out a lot of people by like not having things like bread service. Like, it's not something we wanted to do. It was one thing that we found. Um, just giving I, so many years of doing bread service in restaurants that it seemingly it kind of takes away from what you're doing. People actually order less food. It, it just super wasteful. It's just something that didn't make a lot of sense. But the people that would be really upset about bread service and not getting something for free immediately were the people that wound up not returning, um, which was an interesting study. And we do bread service at Southbound, but, you know, it's a special bread plate that our chef, Craig Perkinson, like makes everything. Yeah. Makes all the bread and it's special. Yeah. They didn't want to give some obligatory random bread to people for the sake of like, this is what you need. It was more trying to create a different unique experience that, you know, people can get their heads around and the people that couldn't get their heads around it did not become our regular. Clientele. Yeah. And that's, that's a good point too. Like you don't have to appease everybody. You don't yeah. have to be everybody's answer, everybody's solution. You, you will, uh, you will find those people. I think it was Bill Cosby. Um, who's not getting as quoted these days, but, <laughs> uh, he said, you know, I don't know the secret to happiness, but I know that you know the secret to being miserable is trying to make everybody happy. Or yeah, something. I can't remember exactly how the quote goes, but you, you can't be everything to everybody. You got to know no. who you want to be to to you know, and, and you focus on that. Right. Um, so, I'm curious. You said that you had that fifty thousand dollar budget to kind of come in and to rebrand this whole place. How did you prioritize what you were going to do? Like, how did you know what would make the biggest impact on the the rebrand, and what was the most important thing to you? Uh, the most important thing was changing the name. Okay, obviously. Um, and really brightening up the restaurant. It was a really dark space. Okay. It was like just very dark. So um, luckily my, my wife's mother, Robin Steele, is an interior designer nice. for the architecture firm along with my... That's convenient. So we had... <laughs> I mean, we were able to do it in 30 days, which was wow. chaos. So I, I can only imagine what it was like in here before. Uh, I didn't see pictures, but right now you have a, like, a, like a light gray. Is it gray? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so very, and it lets the natural light in. It kind of brightens up the place. So what was, what was it before? Like brown? Or? It was just really dark. The floor layout was really weird. Um, 
there was like a booth kind of in the middle of the dining room. So we restructured how all the seating was arranged. Um, had to buy, you know, new chairs, resurfaced all these tables. Okay. Um, was there a lesson you, you drew from? Was it your mother-in-law you said? I think, I think the lesson is you can do things on a budget if you have a good, if you allow the people that you're, that are going to be helping you to do what they know. Okay. Like my, my mother-in-law was, I mean, theoretically this should have cost a hundred thousand dollars and we were able to do it for about 50. Okay. Because my mother-in-law and we were all willing to do the work. Like we just had to come in here and paint. We'd be here just do cleaning yeah, everything. Definitely. Like we just dig in and do it helps to have family in the business for sure yeah um so you said you were here for a year uh before opening you had your wife as a business partner which is key your back house she was front of house mm-hmm. uh, which is huge so you guys had your lanes uh but you didn't really quite have um a network no in that year uh, so how did you how'd you build your team what, well what was weird is uh like some people reached out to me um they heard where I'd worked before, and they were kind of interested to see what was going okay. on. And Lee Gregory of the Roosevelt, he's yeah. now my partner at Southbound. He's one of the people that reached out to me kind of earlier on. It was like, hey, what's your, what's your deal, man? Um, Lee is uh, one of the funniest and smartest people that I have the pleasure of he's knowing. on my hit list. Yeah. <laughs> Lee, Lee, will, Lee will do this. Sweet. He'll do it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, he was one of the people that kind of reached out to me and was really – you know, wanted to know what my plans were um, because he had also worked at Six Burner. So he worked in this building for a couple of years mm-hmm. and knew Rye Marchin and Rye kind of told him what the plan was with Lee and Lee got real curious and wanted to know, you know, what the deal was. But he was also really help. He was really sharing. He was really open about, you know, where he thought I was wrong, let's say. Ooh, that's or, huge. Why is that so big, good to have somebody on your team who's so willing to, to just be blunt and give it to you straight. That's how you, that's how you have to get better. I certainly don't know everything and you need to trust people that one have been around this area. Yeah. Uh, like price points. He, he, we actually pulled the reins back a lot on our price points based off of conversations with him. Okay. And he's like, I found this works better if you put it at, you know, $26 where okay. as you might be selling that up North for 34. Yeah. But this is where this is where it is, yeah. at least within this demographic, and I, I completely listen to it. So when you have to cut eight dollars off the price of something, how do you uh, adjust that in the back end as far as uh, costing and portions? And it's it's tricky. You got to find ways to utilize every part of that uh, of that animal yeah. or vegetable, or whatever it might be, um, fish. It's finding ways to get the most out of your money. Yeah, the charcuterie program became a direct result of that getting whole pigs in and needing to use every single aspect, um, of the animal that's, it's challenging. So I, I had to force myself into learning a lot more and pushing myself into figuring out ways to make every single dollar count because the world I was coming from was so seemingly wasteful. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried to use as much as we could, but I mean, there is, you're squaring up perfect pieces of halibut to make it like a perfect square. Like there's, you're, what the fuck is we wasting all that yeah. that cutoff um, yeah just just to make things look more aesthetically you know perfect and we're far from perfect we're never trying to be that we're just trying to make people happy and yeah. that's if we can do that one other thing i want to draw from this before we get too far away from it because i feel like now's a good time it's just the, the value when you were young you left or you went on your own to um to get on this this team uh, the, the restaurant name was i already forgot it uh highlands in 
Highlanden, was it? The Rylanden. Rylanden. Yeah. So you, you worked for the Rylanden with no experience. Uh, you worked for free to become this person of value so you could develop this resume to, to, to you know, present yourself to other people, to create opportunity for yourself. And because of that, because of the story, because of the storyline you developed for yourself, because of these skills and the people you surrounded yourself with, you come to Richmond and people are throwing themselves at you to be a part of what you're doing because of, of, because of that experience. You, like we, we so focus at, you know, I see people try to open restaurants with no experience all the time. It's possible. And mm-hmm. I've talking, I've spoken to a few people who have pulled it off and who are successful today. But why not get that 10 years of, of experience to make sure this is absolutely what you love to do? 10,000-hour rule. Yeah, again, going back Malcolm to Malcolm Gladwell. Gladwell yeah. yeah. Uh, and to, to develop that reputation and that brand for yourself. And mm-hmm. then think about how much easier it's going to be to attract onto yourself the people you'll, you'll need to pull it off yeah. when you have that track record. You're um, right. You're 100% right. I mean, I think a lot of people aren't willing to put the work in anymore. And maybe that's me looking at it from a skewed perspective. But the people, the younger people that I'm seeing come in here, it's very few and far between the ones that are willing to do that work. It's just, we become a society of instant gratification through social media, through Mm -hmm. how we consume media. And that seemingly is translating into people's thought process behind, especially restaurants or they, people feel like they should automatically have it handed to them. I got a degree, a four year degree from the CIA. So why don't, why shouldn't I be able to open a restaurant or why, why yeah. shouldn't you give me this executive chef role? I earned it. Did yeah. You? <laughs> that's, that's, and that, and that's part of a failing on the school as well yeah. because they were setting up so many people for these false expectations. That's not how the world works. Yeah. Just because you went to CIA for four years, that still means I'm going to start you at $10 an hour. Mm-hmm. Like I can care less. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you have been. It's, it's, it's about where you want to be and what you need to do to prove yourself. And that's still important to me. And maybe, you know, that's just me. So let's talk through the, the opening of heritage, uh, where you were on day one and how you, uh, changed the operations evolved over the two years, uh, to implement better systems processes. So you could remove yourself to the point where you could focus on a, another opening. Yeah. That, that took a really long time. Yeah. Uh, it took a couple of years. I mean, it was, it's really hard to find people that are willing to, let's say, put in the work once again, okay. um, at least from how I, how I operate kitchens and what I expect out of people is usually it's a little bit more than what people are used to from this, this city, seemingly. Um, I just, it's a lot more attention to detail. It's a lot more focus. It's a lot more challenging for the, the cooks that come in here. And it's different. It's definitely different from, you know, what people were used to. So it's trying to retrain people's brains into getting behind what you're trying to do and achieve. How, what's the process for that look like? How do you transform these people? Uh, just trying to lead, trying to lead by example, trying to constantly teach, trying to explain to them why I'm trying to do things a certain way as opposed to just barking out orders. It's yeah. really about once again, trying to teach yeah, and like trying we, to, and teaching becomes, if you're a student, it becomes infectious if you actually care about learning. Um, and that's what happened to me at the Ryland Inn. Like I was learning so much that I became consumed by it, you know, bought, I probably have the equivalent of a college education and cookbooks. Like I would just absorb everything and have like a just, just massive collection that my wife hates at this point, but it's still, you know, giant. Yeah. And I probably spent $25,000 on books. But think about that. I mean, that's value that you're never going to lose. That's value you can pass down. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's still cheaper than going and getting an actual degree. <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, it is. And I'm, I feel fortunate that I didn't go that route 
because I got to learn from so many, you know, amazing chefs and people that taught me so much. And you know, I think if you get yourself in a situation where people are willing to teach, you should absorb as much mm-hmm. as you can. Yeah. And you put yourself in a situation if you get a four-year degree or whatever years and you spend X amount of money to get this title of a graduate of CIA or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now you have to make a certain amount of money because you got those school loans yeah. and you can't go, you can't afford to go work for free uh, because, or, you know, stage on your days off because you, you got to make, you got to make money. I know. Um, it's so tricky. it's interesting. All right. So back to how you transformed heritage over the two years before opening your second location. Uh, Was it two years. I think so. Uh, maybe you know better than I do. Uh, maybe 2003. Three. three years. So what did uh, yeah, three years, what did years. the heritage look like in year one versus in year three? What the key things did you do to be able to remove yourself from the day-to-day so you could focus on getting another channel of revenue? Well, I couldn't really remove myself from day-to-day. Um, that's still where I'm at. So we were lucky enough to get um, kind of early on one of the key members of our company now. It's uh, Craig, Craig Perkinson. So he worked with us here at Heritage for uh, about two years as sous chef and worked his way up to sous chef. Okay. And we kind of presented him with the opportunity to be running um, Southbound. Okay. So that was, it was like internal growth within the company. Yeah. That's the only way I understood it. And I, I can't imagine trying to literally split time all the time. Craig is somebody that we adamantly trust and he does a, an amazing job and Southbound is not possible without yeah. him so yeah, i think it was really trying to instill the core values that you have into that other human hopefully that would move forward and help you grow as a company at what point did you identify in, in craig craig right craig yeah at what, at what point do you identify in craig that he had what it took to run his own restaurant i uh, just you know the way he spoke the way he acted How did um he, act? he led he led led by example just worked really hard didn't didn't complain, didn't, you know, he just put his, put his head down and ground it out yeah. all the time. We're kind of coming back to what I want to put in the, the back burner we were talking about earlier. is just the idea of growth. Um, at what point did you know that like, I'm, I'm going to invest in this guy instead of eventually seeing him go someplace else and open his own place without me? Uh, how can I be proactive? How can I create, <laughs> how can I be his means to creating what he wants? I, th- I think it's once they start, picking up so much of the slack and making you almost not as vital in the day-to-day operations and you start having more and more time available yeah. and not really slowly seeing it occur. Um, that's, I think that's kind of when you know that. And I, I kind of felt the same thing with Mike Hill, who's been traveling the country for about a year, who was our last chef de cuisine here. And we're going to hopefully be doing a project with him in the future, but he got me to a point where I was just like, didn't need to be here all the time okay. and freed up enough of my time where I could spend it with my family or, which is vitally important. Yeah. Um, freed up so much time to the point where he was just picking up so much and growing and you got to have, let people grow and mm-hmm. they, they want to be in charge and they want to lead. How do you and encourage people yearn that growth that. though? Like were, were, was it all him just taking on this or were you kind of like, no, like you coach constant coaching? Okay. I mean, it's coaching and talking about what you want to do and how you want to get there and try to provide them with as many tools as possible and whatever they need to get to that point. Okay. And then they sort of take the ball and run. And, okay. And then they go. Usually. So was Southbound uh, more your vision or did he, was he able to, c- to contribute to the vision? Was he contributed to the vision. Okay. Yeah. Why is that so important? Um, 
ownership. I mean, it's yeah. creating it's creating a sense of ownership, even though they might not have the actual equity in the company. It's creating that, you know, he he is a part of it. He helped yeah. it from the very beginning. Just like at you know when I started at Elements Restaurant, it wasn't my restaurant, but it felt like it. Yeah, because I was involved in all of those aspects in every single part of it from you know from the from the start, and that's what creates a true sense of ownership, even okay. even if you don't have equity in the company. Okay. So when you started Southbound after three years um, at Heritage, what did you do differently with Southbound because of the knowledge and the, ex- the experience you had garnered up to this point? I think we did a lot of things in a similar fashion as far as how we approach food and beverage and service, still trying to focus on using as many local people as possible, keeping it affordable. The only thing I think we did differently was we understood the demographic and we tried to make it a little more family friendly. That's where myself and Lee Gregory were living with our families, families everywhere. So put a kid's menu on. That's not something we have here at heritage or the Roosevelt has. Um, but trying to make it a little more family friendly and focused on still making it nice, Yeah, but really, really pushing the fact that we want people to be able to bring their children. Yeah. You just touched on something that I was hoping we would talk about today too. So Lee Gregory does ha- has no equity in Heritage, correct? No. Um, no. And you have no equity in the Roosevelt, correct? No. But you guys are partners on uh, Southbound, correct? Yeah. How 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 does that work out? Like it's such a I noticed that it's a very unique thing. I noticed a lot of people. Uh, there's like a click, like where like there's different people from different groups who are partnering and having so many different partners. Like how do you balance that? How do you how do you work it, that? I don't know. It seemingly works well. Lee and I just saw. I think we both think in a very similar manner. Yeah. Um, we kind of look at things in the same way. We were good friends and we both talked about, you know, wanting to do something on the South side, which is where uh, Southbound is. It's like a, it's like a polyamorous restaurant owner, like <laughs> thing going on. Yeah. It's weird. I, I guess, I guess it's weird. I, I feels, it feels normal and natural at this point, but you know, having, having two people trying to execute that vision is seemingly, it's a lot easier and it's a lot less horrifying than trying to do it on your own. Yeah. So I'm curious. Um, so Lee Gregory has partners like Kendra feather. And I think mm-hmm. there's a few partners with the, the Roosevelt. Um, I'm sure. I know. She's uh, I the- believe it was Lee and Kendra at this point. And that, and Kendra also has uh, a few other restaurants, Garnett she does. and yeah. uh, Laura Lee. And mm-hmm. is, is Lee associated with those no. restaurants? No. So does she have other partners in those restaurants? I'm not sure. She might. I just w- I wonder if there's like the sense of like um, how do you prioritize what restaurant you give attention to? Is there ever jealousy? Is there ever like stress on like what about uh, our baby? Like you're, you're yeah, focused on the baby you have with her, but what, like we got our baby over here. Like, I mean that, that absolutely ever- happens. I, I would assume um, just human nature. Yeah, but you know you you really have to be able to realize once again you can't make everybody happy, mm-hmm. and you have to delegate as much time as you have to where it's needed, and you're you're going to disappoint somebody at some point. Yeah. That's, it's inevitable. And as long as it's not I, I spent too much, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I spent way too much time stressing about that to the point where like I couldn't manage it anymore. And okay. opening the second one stressed me all the way out. Just trying to figure out how to allocate your time properly between my family, young family, new family. And, and your wife is uh, in the, the business too. She's doing the day to day too. Yeah, yeah, front of house. And she helped us out with Southbound tremendously, even though she's not a partner there, but um, she still helps us out. So I'm curious. Um, 
your, I mean, the the partnership between you and your wife with this first restaurant, Heritage, is very organic in the sense that you're you know partners in life. She's front of house, you're back of house. Uh, what did Lee bring to the table? Since he's back of the house, he's a chef. How did you, how did he compliment you? But what made him a good business partner? Where did he pick up for where you were weak and vice versa? Um, you know, I, I, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, but Lee definitely, I think, helped me kind of not worry about every little thing over time. Like just, I, I think I was really focused on all the tiny little details when sometimes they were not the best time spent or wasted energy. Okay. Um, has a really... He's really bright, super bright, but at the same time, he, he kind of has the ability to let some certain things go. Um, he was kind of like everybody's fun uncle where I was everybody's, uh, you know, mean dad sometimes. <laughs> okay. uh, I, would be, I would have to do a little bit more of the difficult conversations um, or try to handle those, and that's something I'm, I'm fine with. Yeah. But it's, it's really taking an honest look at each other and trying to figure out how you're going to complement each other and how you can work together is pretty huge to, you know, us being successful as partners and understanding where we need help and not being afraid to ask for it mm-hmm. if you need it. Mm-hmm. And if you're not comfortable doing something, you need to talk about it. Okay. So what about the front of house with that, with Southbound? How did you do, uh, how did you decide who would, who would handle that? Um, Your wife, my said- wife helped, helped out a lot. We had somebody who was, working with us at heritage for almost since day one, uh, helping us run the front of the house. But you know, that's, that's something we've struggled with, honestly. Mm -hmm. Like it's something we've had trouble with finding the right person. And we have a great general manager there now. Um, but at the same time, it took us a long time to get to that point. And Mm -hmm. that's still been a point of contention for us. The food has been something we understand and can wrap our heads around. And we still have so much to learn about from, you know, the front of the house perspective that we're still learning and trying to get better at it. And we're still trying to surround ourselves with good people that are, can kind of execute you know, a high level of service. And it's, it's challenging. Yeah. It's hard. So what did you do to eventually get that person that, that GM in the front of house? Uh, what incentive did you provide? How did you make that appealing with, with a market that's so competitive? What did you do differently? Just, you just got to pay more. <laughs> you got to pay more and hope, uh, you know, hope you can find the the right person. It was it was a big challenge trying to find um, the right person, and sometimes it's time and place. Sometimes the people are usually most of the good people are all working. Yeah, I feel like I'm putting a lot of pressure on you right now. You doing good? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, is there anything we haven't discussed up to this point? Anything that you feel like you have specialized knowledge on? Any light that you can shine to make the lives of my listeners easier before we move on to the speed round? Uh, yeah, maybe it's just investing in mental health. Mm. I think that's, especially with trying to own and operate businesses and it's something within this industry that is not, not enough attention is paid to sometimes and, uh, really investing in yourself by investing in your own mental health, I think is vitally important. How do you invest in yourself? What does does this process of investing in yourself so you can invest in your mental health look like? What are things you do to make sure that this happens? Well, I had to stop drinking. Mm-hmm. That was my one of my things that I had to do. Um, and like I, I went and talked to a therapist on a regular basis to try to help me understand how my brain was working, number one, that I can hopefully be able to be a better employer, 
or husband or father, whatever it might be. But who were you um, when you were drinking? What, what, what was going on? The things that the, the impact that that had. Um, I think I was still a, you know, an immature cook, let's say, um, and still trying to pretend like I was in my twenties. Um, and, and then I also became a person that didn't pay as much attention as I should be to almost every aspect, whether it was restaurants or family, just starting to slack on all that. And I had to get myself some help. And when did this happen? When did you get the help? Um, and right about a year before we opened Southbound. So it was just a really hard couple of years getting open. We had our first child six months after opening Heritage. So it was just a lot that I wasn't really ready for. It was like buying a house, we bought a new house, we opened a restaurant and had a child in a year. And mm. it was just like too many life yeah. changes that I didn't understand how to deal with and used alcohol to pretty much you know <laughs> try to level myself out when would you drink like before work or after work or it was, it was after work and then you know eventually I, w- I, w- I would never drink during work until i got like comfortable enough and had like too much time where people were actually exceeding or doing well and had too much idle time mm-hmm. idle time is seemingly a really bad thing for yeah me. so i'm just gonna keep <laughs> i guess opening restaurants until yeah. <laughs> i don't have idle time um, but no, that's, that's gotten a lot better, but I did start drinking, you know, during work or when I needed to be around people or having to go in social, certain social situations, like up a traveling bit. out of town or meeting new people or being part of events. Like that's when I would drink. And then it just became a point. It got to a point where I was using it as medication Yeah, and trying to manage anxiety or stress through alcohol became almost my demise. So, so how, so it, it helped you with social situations, but what was the repercussion? Um, thankfully other than upsetting my wife often, um, and making, you know, I didn't lose really anything. And I think that's because I caught it early enough to the point where I was able, I would have lost everything hundred mm-hmm. percent. If I just kept on the same path, I wouldn't have this or Southbound or my family. It just all would have gone away. Yeah. And I hope you don't mind me pulling back the layers, but I feel like that's where the no, lessons okay. are. Yeah, and that's great. So what was it that you would do that would be going over the edge? Um, Not coming, like not calling when I would be out, okay. staying out, you know, just all the dumb shit that yeah. a lot of people will so do. So as soon as you made the, the commitment to yourself for mental health to, to give up drinking, are you sober now? Have you not, yeah. do you not drink at yeah. all? Sober, sober now. Um, I was sober for about two years and kind of fell back into it. Um, but since November, I've been sober again. And, and uh, actually, since then, Jason Alley and I have uh, started a chapter yep. of Ben's Friends, which is a restaurant support network. Um, kind, of, kind of like similar to AA, at yep. least, but really meant for industry-specific um, for restaurant people. And it's Scott, I think uh, you've interviewed Scott Crawford before. Yes. Is that right? Yes. yes. Scott, uh, Scott's one of the founders. Sons son, something and Sons, Crawford and Sons? Crawford and Sons, yeah. yeah. He's one of the founders. Started in Charleston and we've had uh, three meetings here since starting this uh, chapter in Richmond. And once again, it's just trying to focus on mental health so we can be here for a long time. Yeah. So what are those meetings? Like, what does that look like? So if maybe we're interested in, in, maybe we are starting to have this, this conversation in our head that we have a problem that we need help. And maybe we want to surround ourselves with other people, a support group. Mm-hmm. 
what do, what do, what do these groups look like? How, how are you making an impact? Um, well, we're just being every Monday at 10 o'clock. We're having meetings here at Heritage, yep. uh, 10 in the morning. And we're just trying to kind of be available for people so they can build a support network. So hopefully they can. We also have resources to help people get into either you know, AA or NA or smart recovery, whatever it might be. Okay. And just trying to help people invest in themselves that, mm. that are willing to try to make a change if they realize, you know, it's become a problem. And it's kind of in this industry, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. And that's one of the challenges is to We're surrounded by it. Yeah. So it's a unique set of challenges yeah. um, that people in the restaurant industry have more so than let's say doctors, lawyers, yeah. or whatever it might be. They don't have to work next to a wall of liquor all day. Yeah. And so it's, it's trying to find coping mechanisms to be able to Not only are you working that. next to liquor, but you're also serving liquor. liquor. Yeah. You're around people who are intoxicated. And I want to sell liquor. Like, that's my goal. Yeah. <laughs> my goal as a restaurateur is yeah. to try to sell alcohol because that's where profits are made. So what's your life look like today after having the discipline to get the help you need to make these strides in the right direction? How are you benefiting? Like, what's your life look like today versus where it was then? I'm just present for my family mm. and present for anybody that needs me where I, where I wasn't. And I was in a huge fog and, and suffering from like debilitating anxiety to the point where wasn't able to socialize. Like doing this two years ago would be fucking out of the question. <laughs> well, you're doing great, man. And yeah. I'm loving the conversation. And how's your business, uh, thrives? Are you this present, the sense of presence? Are, are you there for your people more now? Yeah. Or what I, do you mean I, I, you know, I have to be at heritage more because we bought the building last year. Um, and, you know, to make all the money work, I need to be in the kitchen every day yeah. and cooking. And I can usually be at Southbound about a day, one day out of the week. Um, but I'm, able, I'm just able to be here more. My creativity has kind of come back. And, mm. um, you know, we've seemingly done, we're doing really well. And I can't imagine uh, being back in that place. We were yeah. still doing well when I was in that bad place. Yeah. Maybe not as well as we could have been but still doing really well and profitable yeah but it was just not sustainable yeah and i'm curious one more question before we move to this b round because we're drawing this out but uh how has being there for your community with is it ben's friends Mm -hmm. how has being there for your community your your uh professional community has that turned around have you have you um, basically, have you been able to grow your team because of it? Have you sourced people to like grow your team? I, I'm, being I'm, present? Ho- I, I'm hopeful. Yeah. I mean, so far it's been. I'm sure. That's not the reason why you're doing it, but it's, no, just, it's no. a byproduct of being there for people in your industry. Absolutely. You, you it could be. Yeah. When you, when you're there for others, they're, they're there for you. It's only been, uh, it's only been about three weeks of having meetings. So yeah. it's still kind of in its uh, infancy, but yeah, it's, it's just, once again, so many people have reached out, um, saying that they are struggling and I'm just hopeful that this can help other people because yeah. it certainly helps myself and, and Jason um, kind of stay on the right path. It yeah. creates a little bit more accountability. And that's another point of this whole, like this entanglement of restaurant tours in this community. Uh, you have business partner, Gregory, uh, who's a business partner with Kendra mm-hmm. and you're doing this partnership with Jason for Ben's friends. Like there's such a, a tight knit uh, support group. It's a great community. Like. It's really, it really, it's awesome. It really there's is. a lesson in there in itself. Um, all right. I think we've uh, done a good job with this free flowing part of the conversation. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. All right. I have a question for you. How can 
an anonymous employee reporting program be a profit center for your restaurant? Hmm. Well, for starters, fraud alone represents a staggering loss to the restaurant industry with an estimated $40 billion in losses in the U.S. in 2017 alone. And this does not include the losses and costs associated with the more than 540,000 calls made to the U.S. EEOC in 2017, resulting in millions of dollars in penalties and legal costs for restaurant owners and investigators related to claims of harassment and discrimination. So do I have your attention? Good, because there's more. Employee tip-offs about misconduct continue to be the most common method for detection and prevention, but employees are often deterred from reporting their concerns directly to supervisors because they're afraid that there's going to be retaliation or they might lose their job or something, and I get it. But with Ethics Suite's anonymous and web-based restaurantethics.com, you can provide a safe, secure, simple, and anonymous communication channel between you and your employees to help protect your hard-earned reputation and assets. Go to ethicssuites.com slash restaurants unstoppable and you will get three additional months so for the cost of 12 months you'll get 15 months or head over to the show notes and find the banner and you can use the link there we're back and the first question i have for you is what is your it's factor a habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success making people happy or trying to make people happy awesome what is your biggest weakness Lack of time. What is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process when you're trying to build that team? Handshake and eye contact. Mm. Why is that so important? Because if you can't shake somebody's hand and look somebody in the eye, they're probably not worth a shit. Yeah. And that's one of probably the biggest lessons I've learned from a friend of mine. Uh, I'll say his name. Jeremy Melanson taught me like in high school. Uh, when you shake someone's hand, it's about the, the person, not the hand. Right. And you see it all the time when somebody go, they look at the hand. But if it's something about an eye contact during the handshake that just yeah. makes it so much more present. Teach your people how to shake a friggin' hand. <laughs> uh, so many people don't know how to shake hands yeah. today. Like if, like if you can teach your, your staff one thing, make it part of standard training to, to freaking shake a hand well. Sorry. Um, <laughs> what's your biggest challenge today? Having enough time for my family. Mm. How are you combating that? Trying to, I think, find great people that you can trust and be able to take the time when you need it. Um, it's it's hard to break away if you don't have trust in the people that are helping you run the business. And mm-hmm. if they're not people you trust, you can't take the time. Mm-hmm. What is one standard of service, something that's common within your four walls, but not standard within the industry that you do here at Heritage Southbound that uh, isn't common in other places. Mm. I think I think it's really just consistency of service. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're and how we try to treat people as if they are family. Mm-hmm. We try to make people feel like they're family members when they're dining with us and we want them to feel at home. We want them to feel a level of comfort that sometimes I think is lost. Um, and it's, it's really, once again, just focusing on people and we have a wonderful staff at both restaurants that like people yeah. and care a lot about people and trying to make them happy. So how do you train that consistency? What things do you do to make sure that consistency is always present? I, th- I think it's just consistently going over, all the finer points 
over and over and over again and just reminding people until they get it. And even if even if they get it, it's still reminding people. What are the finer points? Pulling back the layers here, trying to go deep. Um that's a that's a better question for my wife because she makes it so seamless. Um and so does our staff. And I, I think it's it's really just attention to detail on so many things, even if it's like, you know, making sure somebody always consistently has water. Like mm-hmm. that's the little things, little, little things, but that's so big. Mm-hmm. Like it's the thing we need most. Yeah. And it has to always be there. Share one code of conduct or a behavior, a core value you teach your team, a way to be, a way to act. Try to act with integrity, act and treat people the way that really you would like to be treated. Um, and just be respectful for, towards anybody, regardless of their views or the what, golden rule. Right? Yeah. Uh, what's one book that will make us a better person or restaurant owner? Mm-hmm. I think Danny Danny Meyer has released a bunch of great books um, that he has a he has a really great understanding of. Once again, it's really all about people. Mm-hmm. Um, setting the table, yep. I believe. Yeah, yep. that's. I, I think that book is pretty important. Also, uh, Charlie Trotter's uh, lesson. I think it was Lessons in Service. Yes, he has uh, Lessons in Excellence. Or lessons lesson, in Yeah, in that's. Lessons in, there's, there's two out there. But uh, those were those were uh, also super influential to us when we were getting started. And what was the biggest lesson you got from, from Charlie Trotter uh, in, the, in those books? Um, it's really all about the guest. It's not about you. Mm-hmm. And that's, it should always just be about the guest. Share an online resource or tool that you leverage to either access knowledge or to make your life more efficient. Um, I guess Instagram at this point seemingly yeah. is the main, when I was coming up, it was ideas and food, mm-hmm. which is a, we're good friends with Alex and Aki and they've done some dinners together. Ideas and food is one of the most comprehensive blogs that's ever existed. And they're two of the smartest people I've ever known. Those that helped me grow so much in understanding uh, a lot of the finer points and one of the first people that really started sharing on a major level. So with Instagram, give us one, uh, I guess, uh, practice, one thing you do, one Instagram uh, magic trick that you've had a good uh, results with. I'm still trying to figure all this stuff (laughs) out. Um, I think it's really just having the ability to shoot it towards – so. We have three different accounts, um, the main ones, you know, Twitter, mm-hmm. Facebook, and Instagram. But with Instagram, just shooting everything directly to Facebook to Facebook and Linking Twitter. accounts. Yeah, it's just it's super efficient. Yeah. Taking one picture and getting it across three platforms yep. is, is the easiest way of doing it. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy how, like, how much of an impact putting something up has, at least I've found, um, like whether it's soft shell crabs or a specific dish, how much more we actually wind up selling um, if you put it up there. Is there a tag you use or a thing you do to make sure to just know. put it up? I hate hashtags. I hate all that <laughs> shit. I, I usually just do RVA dine because that's okay. the tag that most people use around here or RVA eats. Okay. And I'm not good with all the tagging stuff. I just try to put it out there. Yep. It's crazy to watch people use it as like this digital menu. It's mm-hmm. like they're coming in and when they sit down, I've seen people like look up heritage Instagram yeah. and then flip through the pictures and then sometimes ask specifically if that dish is still here, which so, usually it's not. 
is it, do you ever use it? Say, for example, if you're trying to push something, or yeah. if there's like a good, product, or, like, or I just do new shit. Yeah. Any, anytime something new, I just put it up there, or, and it could be gone in two days. Good margins on a product. One day, you you push that, so you, you sell more of it or something like that. I should be better about looking at stuff like that, but no, it's okay. more just like just popped into my head. So yeah, it's like new stuff, and it's kind of whatever whatever we're working on, or something interesting, or you know, most of the time now it's like my children slash food. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what is one technology you've adopted in your restaurant? This is more like operational, like a POS system, a reservation system, something that you've adopted that has had a big influence on your, your business, profitability, communication, efficiencies, things of that nature. Um, Google drive. Yep. Google drive is how we wind up sharing a lot of recipes and information, yep. um, through like, you know, shared folders, adding multiple people, having it broken down for, you know, recipes, especially mm-hmm. um, where it's really easy to access for pretty much anybody. All they have to do is click on whatever subsection they're looking at and they'll pretty much find a recipe. Got you. So this is the last question. You ready for it? If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom, three things you know to be true uh, that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? a deep one um well one it's not about you uh two it's really about the guests mm-hmm. and three just try to make it nice mm, i love it awesome stuff chef thank you so much for taking the time to yeah, thank you to share your story to share your mentorship i wouldn't be able to do this without you guys uh being so open and uh just willing uh why don't you let the folks at home know if we want to connect with you, if we want to maybe join your team or if we want to just follow your work, what's the best way to connect? Um, through our websites and social media. Um, website is www.heritagerva.com and Southbound is same www at or www.southboundrva.com. And yeah, just social media usually is the best way to find us. And if somebody was listening to this and they uh, need help uh, with their addictions uh, and they want to maybe start their own chapter uh, with Ben's friends, what's the best way to, to learn more about that? So you can reach out to um, www.bensfriendshope.com and they have an about section and or you can reach out to us and we can help them uh, get the proper resources to to uh, get in touch with the founders and you know, try to link them up so we can hopefully help some other people. Great. I love it. Uh, and before I let you go, we wrap up every episode by calling somebody out. So who's one independent restaurant operator, somebody you admire and believe would make a great guest mentor on the show. Maybe somebody in Richmond so I can connect with them the next four days before I get out of here. Uh, Lee Gregory. All right, Lee, I'm coming after you, man. Uh, look out. And, uh, again, just thank you so much, chef. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thanks, man. (laughs) Cheers. All right, so there's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable, and I apologize for the wonky audio, equi- or uh, I guess the audio quality right now. I uh, lost the little adapter that I use to uh, use my, my special mic uh, in conjunction with my smartphone uh, software. Uh, I won't get too technical, but anyway, I will repair that as soon as I get to an Apple store. Uh, so... Great conversation today with Chef Sparata. Uh, I think the big ones here are just uh, the importance of spending that time to hone in on your craft. I mean, 
take that time to really get that foundation and to learn as much as you can about the industry. Understanding the why behind things is so important too. Uh, when we understand why things work a certain way, it gives us it gives us that discipline to, to follow through and do the thing. Uh, and when when is it time to make somebody your partner when they make your life easier when this person in your life is of value so much to the point where they're just making your life easier why not continue to make your life easier and to provide opportunity to this person and to, to get another channel of revenue uh you know partner uh invest in these incredible people uh a lot of people disagree with that i'll be honest this is kind of one of those things where people are split but i i today with how uh, competitive the market is think that there's no other way to be competitive unless you're a freak of nature but I'm not a freak of nature and, and most other people aren't freaks of nature so uh, learn how to be somebody who works well with others uh, get in your lane so awesome stuff today like always guys do reach out to me Eric at restaurantstoppable.com tell me who you want to hear from tell me what topics I can go deep into I'm here to serve you reach out to me keep those five star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming up to 141 reviews and our restaurant unstoppable as of when we're publishing this is the number one restaurant podcast on iTunes so excited about that thank you guys so much keep those reviews coming though uh, let's let's stay at the top and then uh, what else today? Um, yeah, I'm going to be in Austin when you're listening to this. So if you're in Austin and you want to connect, please do reach out to me. I'd love to meet you. And I think that's all for today. Thanks for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.